Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Since I see some guests here and new faces, I just will say that you won't understand a lot of what's being said or talked about or Im- implied here if you don't understand that this is, this is a new beginning. I'm not the normal guy up here. This is my first Sunday as the senior pastor of the church. We just have gone through a season of transition. We've had a, a faithful shepherd for 25 years, a founding shepherd who has cared for us and shepherded us as a church. I'm a son of his ministry and of the love and, and faithfulness of this congregation. I've spent, Jenna, what, 15, 16 years, 17 years here being trained and loved and growing up among you. And God has called me and you have called me to serve you. So that starts now. And I just wanted that to be out in the open. You're clapping now. We'll see if you clap later. (laughs) It's summertime and that means it's the time of travel, people popping in and out of town. There's sections of the room empty, emptier than normal. That's okay, I understand. Have fun wherever you are um, as you come and go this summer. But I wanted to say two things real quickly about those who will be traveling. The first is, go ahead, take a vacation from us. Take a vacation from your job, from your normal routines. That's healthy and good. Don't take a vacation from God. Wherever you are on the road, find the best church you can, Join that congregation and worship. You'll meet wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lord. You will hear good preaching. You will, you, will, it's, you will instruct your children about what priorities they should have in their life, what your priorities are, and you will be a witness to many others who you might be with. This is just, you should do this. It's easy to neglect. Don't neglect it. Take your Bible with you. Read the Bible together as families, as individuals. Don't take a vacation from God, okay? The second thing is, I would ask that as you're traveling, as you're going to other churches and enjoying fellowship there, that you would please follow along with the sermons here through our podcast, through the Facebook live stream, those kinds of things. We have a lot on our hearts as as pastors to, to talk about and process together as a congregation. This is a critical time in our church life, we want to be together. We want to have the, sit under the same teaching. And when you come back, and we're, we're all back together mostly in August, we want everybody up to speed. We've chosen sermons and topics this summer that we think are important for us as a church to be considering and, and processing. So um, please do that uh, in your own time. As, as, however it works out for you, we would appreciate it very much. Now then, what is our plan for preaching this summer? You see it up on the screen. Seven timely imperatives for Trinity Reformed Church. What's an imperative? You guys remember from from grammar, grammar class? There's five moods or modes of language in, in English that grammarians tell us. Five different ways of expressing ourselves categorically. What are they? Indicatives, indicatives are statements of fact. Interrogatives, what's an interrogative? (laughs) It's a question. Those statements of fact, there's questions. What else is there? I have to look at my notes. Conditional mood, the conditional mood. That's like, if such and such happens, then this will happen. Those are, are conditional statements. There's the subjunctive mood. I understand this one least, I think, but it's sort of like wishes, a hypotheticals, sort of future possibilities, things that, statements of unreality or hoped for reality, subjunctives. There's finally imperatives. What's an imperative? Instructions, commands, directives. Do this, don't do that. Avoid this, avoid that. Those are Those are imperatives. And all of these things are throughout Scripture, but there's a lot of imperatives in Scripture. How do you boil it down to seven? Well, I don't know. We've just tried to follow the Lord, 
our sense of the congregation and its needs, we're going to talk about seven New Testament commands or imperatives that are timely for us as a congregation this summer. And I stumbled into this idea for a series trying to figure out what on earth my first sermon to you as your senior pastor should be about. And the felt need, the thing on, on my heart, if you can put yourself in my shoes for just a half a second, you'll have a lot of sympathy for this. It was pray for us. Pray for us. And that led me to first, or Second Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul says that. He says that to his dear friends, children in the faith in Thessalonica, he, he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. That was my felt need, above all other things, coming in to this day. And it's what led me to this passage. So this is our first timely imperative that we're going to look at. Paul's command to the Thessalonians, pray for us. Let's read it together in its context and see what God has to teach us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. This is God's word. It is eternally true. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The inspired human author of those words is the Apostle Paul. I want to talk to you a little bit about the Apostle Paul so you understand who and what he's about. God, or Paul was the greatest missionary evangelist church planner of all time. He went on three really famous extended journeys through from starting in Jerusalem to across like the northern coast, really, of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way up towards ultimately Rome. Some sailing adventures in the islands and all kinds of things. They had a lot of adventures, a lot of interesting things. You read a lot about his ministry there, the facts of it in the book of Acts, and then you learn a lot about his heart as a shepherd from his letters to the churches that he left behind after he went from place to place. He, he went about gathering converts, establishing churches, raising up leaders to shepherd those churches, and then moving on to the next town to do it all over again, over and over again. That's what the apostle did. And wherever he went, he carried those former people, his sons and daughters in faith. They didn't, have, they didn't know about Jesus. He landed and taught them about Jesus. He established them in their faith. He was their spiritual father. And he carried his children in his heart wherever he went as a shepherd, very generous and loving man. Paul went all sorts of places on his journeys, but he was pretty strategic and he liked to especially go to cities that were important for commerce or culture and try to work to establish faith there. That's what Thessalonica was, it was a pretty important city. He went there on his second missionary journey and we read about that in Acts 17. I want, there's 10 verses that explain or talk about his time in Thessalonica. I think it's helpful for us and to understand the context of his relationship to them, to understand what went down there. So let's read it together. Acts 17, 1 to 10. Luke, the author of this account, says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, Paul was a Jew, he went to them, to the Jews at the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, those would be the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas among, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks 
and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, their host, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, that's Paul and his companions, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. <laughs> the cycle starts again. <laughs> That's a good window into Paul's method of evangelism and the typical fruit of that method in most places he went on his journeys. If there was a Jewish synagogue, he started there and he would reason with them, God's people, the Jews, from their scriptures that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecy about a Messiah, that he had already come and he had done this wonderful work. Paul would start there. And he would also, during the week, proclaim Jesus in the marketplace to anybody who would listen to him. And he would be met with two strikingly different reactions. The first would be the kind of reaction where people hear about Jesus and love Jesus. God has given, they're God's people, they're of the elect, they're chosen of God, and God is plucking them out through the preaching of his word and finding them and transporting them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. They're becoming alive in faith. They hear the message of the gospel and they believe because God is working in their hearts. And they join with Paul. That specifically said they joined with Paul. It's very relational, very personal. We are not saved to be autonomous, lone ranger, by myself and my Bible people. We're, we're saved into a family, a household. We're brothers and sisters. Paul became their brother, their father in the faith. They joined with him. That was one response. The other response that Paul would get would be hatred, resistance. And that's what we see in Thessalonica. Actually, we see the intensity of both of these things. It was a wonderful time of harvest and reaping for the apostle Paul. Oh, it, the, the scripture in Acts emphasizes the, the great numbers that turned to the Lord, especially among the God-fearing Greeks. So this was, as, as a fisher of men, it was a good catch. I was thinking, as I was preparing of a time I went fishing with my grandpa, and I probably shouldn't tell you how many other people, because then you'd start counting how many fish we brought home each, and that I'm sure we exceeded the rules. But it was white bass fishing season, in, uh, on Lake Stockton Lake in Missouri and we were going up some of the little rivers that feed the lake and we caught 115 fish in just a couple one evening very just in a little little boat like the whole boat's just full of fish and all we're just like throwing the bare hook down in the water and almost immediately fish are biting this is like what's happening in Thessalonica but also there's this other reaction that's sort of an equal and opposite force of resistance and persecution and intensity. The whole town is in an uproar because of the jealousy and the hard-hearted resistance to the gospel on the part of many Jews. That's pretty typical though. The magnitude, the scale, might be not, this might be extraordinary, but it's a pretty typical response for the Apostle Paul wherever he went about preaching. In this case, because of the intensity, Paul departed and went to Berea. He was actually sent away by the people who loved him. His spiritual children, concerned for him, said, you need to leave. This is just, we're, we're worried about you. And they sent him away to Berea. And Paul there found a more noble-minded group of Jews who were open and willing to consider what he was saying and they would go home and they would search the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Scripture says they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, but when the Jews in Thessalonica heard what was going on in Berea and that Paul had gone there, they went 45 miles 
to come and cause trouble and stir up trouble for him there. And they did. And so he went on again to Athens and then to Corinth. And it's probably from Corinth that Paul writes his letters to the Thessalonians. All the while, while he's doing his ministry in each new town, in each new setting, he's carrying these Thessalonians in his heart. He's thinking about them. He's praying for them. He writes to them letters of great encouragement and hope because he knows they're being put to it by their persecutors. The trouble hasn't, may have calmed down a little because Paul's not there anymore, but it hasn't calmed down. <laughs> they're still living with these tensions and difficulties in their life. Paul thinks about them. He tries to encourage them. That one of those, that wonderful passage that we often read at funerals about where Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep in the Lord so that you won't grieve like the others do, like the rest do. Let me tell you about the coming day of the Lord and what it's gonna look like and what's gonna happen. That comes in one of these letters to the Thessalonians. So Paul carries them in his heart. He's such a, a loving shepherd. He cares for them. He does what he can to help them from afar. And this is the way Paul was with all the churches. He writes in one of his letters to the, in the second letter to the Corinthians in order to get a bunch of people off his back. He sort of has to defend himself. And he's, it's, he's later in his ministry. <laughs> he's suffered a lot. He doesn't have any patience for people giving him a hard time. And he basically says, would nobody give me any more trouble, please? I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> Here's all the things I've suffered physically for the Lord over these many years of ministry. He recounts them. You should read it, 2 Corinthians 11, I think. And he adds, he tags on to the end of that. He says, apart from such external things, like all of these horrible sufferings and difficulties that I've encountered, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I have to carry, I carry the weight of so many souls and churches and their well-being on me all the time. He says, who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? I've decided I want those words, 29, over the door of my office. Who is, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Because I want to be reminded every time I come to work of the kind of shepherd that God would have me be, the kind of shepherd you need me to be, and I want you to be reminded too, this is good accountability, of the kind of shepherd you should expect me, and I hope you will expect me to be, for you. Paul carried these churches all over Europe, Asia, that he had helped found with God's help, with the power of the Spirit in his heart. And he did whatever he could, praying for them, instructing them, fighting, for them or fighting them as the need demanded. But it was not a one-way street. Paul was a man. He was a part of the same body of Christ as they. He was just another part of that body, extraordinary part as an apostle, but he was a man. And he had, he had a heavy sense, a deep sense of his responsibility to fulfill his calling and his office for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a deep sense of his inadequacy for doing it. That's one of the things I, as a minister, find most encouraging about the New Testament is actually Paul's sense of his own inadequacy and dependence on God for power, for strength, and his willingness to be dependent on the, on the provision of others and the prayer of God's people for him. Paul says, I'd rather boast in my weakness. I'm weak. I'm coming to you 
and fear and trembling, I'm weak. I can, that resonates with me as a shepherd. I get that. And then one of my favorite statements of Paul in the New Testament that gives me comfort is when he says, when he's talking about his work as an apostle and an evangelist, he says, who is adequate for these things? The answer, of course, is nobody, not even Paul. Who's adequate for these things? Our adequacy is, our, our hope, our power is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. So carrying w- about with him always a deep sense of obligation for the souls of others and an equally deep sense of his own inadequacy for caring and shepherding those souls, Paul requests from those to whom he's given so much something for himself in return. Not their money, but their prayers. He writes in verse one of our passage, finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Matthew Henry says this is remarkable humility. We should remark at it. This is a man so gifted in prayer, so passionate about prayer, so generous with his prayer for so many people and churches. What an, he calls it an engaging example that this man gives us who is so mighty in prayer himself and yet despised not the prayers of the lowest Christian. He was a part of a body and he identified with and shared his life with and thought that the prayers of people in other towns that he had only had a season with were valuable to him, helpful to him, and he was very much desirous to have them. Do you ask for prayer from others? Or are you too proud? Do you have any sense of your weakness, struggle? Is there anything about you and your understanding of your life and of your struggles and your needs that leads you to say, brothers and sisters of my small group, brother here in the hallway at church, pastor, would you pray for me? I have this thing. When you ask for prayer, there are some of us who I just never hear ask for prayer. And that just doesn't, I don't even know how to understand that. That does not compute with, a, 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 with life, spiritual life and the realities of temptation and the difficulties and demands of various callings. Do you know yourself as a father, as a husband, and the responsibilities upon your shoulders? You should be asking for prayer, fathers and husbands, that God would help you in particular ways to fulfill those callings. Moms, wives, do you have any understanding of the huge demands before God that are on your shoulders? You should be asking for prayer that God would help you fulfill these things in your life. Employers, employees, teachers, students, friends, those who struggle with besetting sins, so much need constantly for God's help, and you have no more ability, and probably a lot less than the Apostle Paul. He didn't hesitate not to ask for prayer, but to command it. (laughs) Pray for us. Turn to your small group and ask for prayer. When you ask for prayer, it's good to pray for job opportunities. It's good to pray for health concerns. Once in a while, something a little closer to the bone would be good for you and would be honest of you, would be good for your humility, and would be good for the whole group to bear with you. You, One of the lies of sin is that you're the only one who struggles in that way. And everybody else believes that lie about themselves. (laughs) Every one of us believes that lie. You open up, you have faith to open up your struggle with the people you trust to carry that with you and you'll, you'll help them all because they'll all be like, yeah, me too. I thought I was the only one. Humble yourself and ask for prayer. That's one of the lessons we learn here from the Apostle Paul. But the real doctrine 
that this is putting forward and teaching to us is that we should pray for our ministers. They're people too. And they have a really important calling and role in our lives. Paul had a, the, way, the world depended on the apostle Paul, literally. The waiting world depended upon him to have faith, to persevere, to love, to have a little bit more energy to squeeze out than he felt that he really had. You know, to suffer again rejection, to have zeal for the Lord, to have conviction and faith for preaching. Paul was not shy about asking for prayer, particularly about his preaching. The world depended upon it, what he would say and announce to them. It's not that dissimilar here. We, don't, we take our pastors for granted. I don't say that because I feel taken for granted. I say that because I recognize this week, thinking about this text, that I've taken Tim Bailey for granted. I'm not taking Tim Bailey for granted anymore. <laughs> we depend on our shepherds to have faith for their work to have wisdom for their work, to have skill for their work, to have love in their work, to have patience and kindness in their work. Souls, our souls, hang in the balance. We need shepherds, we need preachers. I had some man this week startle me. I was talking to him been getting to know him. I think he's a Christian. It's a great encouragement to me. And he said, I was saying some challenging things. I thought maybe I've gone too far. I don't know, but this seems obvious to me that these things need to be said. And he said, don't worry about it. You're, I need to hear these things. You're my pastor. And I thought, I don't know that I've ever said that <laughs> to, to my pastor. Or, you know, that's just real faith and humility on the part of this man. And it confesses the truth that God has made us dependent on our shepherds. We're not saved into what? Autonomy. We're not just saved into the household of God. Along with and a part of the household of God, God has put shepherds, leaders, fathers over his house and our lives and our safety and our prosperity depend on their faithfulness. In recognition of this, Paul, who is eager, very eager, to see the results of his work among the Thessalonians and the prosperity of God's, the bountiful blessing of God's spirit that he experienced when he was among them, happened in more places. And he says, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us, your shepherds. That's the, the, the big lesson here. And the reason why we're starting here is we need your prayer. You need us to be good for you. We want to be good for you. You can't count on that if you're looking at us. You can count on God to work through us because that's what God loves to do. So pray that God would bless you through me. I have a lot of growing to do. I know that. I have a lot to learn about being a preacher, about being a shepherd, about being a counselor. I have a lot to learn. You need a lot from me and the other pastors. Pray that God would give it to you through me. Don't take it for granted. That's the way I don't want to be taken for granted. <laughs> that is, pray that God would bless you through me. I don't need this because I need sycophants. <laughs> I, I, I do like encouragement, but I don't need fanboys. <laughs> What I want is you to be blessed.
and well cared for. And God has all that we need and is pleased to bless us through our ministers. So pray for us. You'll be praying for yourself. You'll be praying for your neighbor on the row seat next to you. And you'll be praying for people who aren't even here yet that God would work through us as your shepherds. How do you pray? How should you pray for us? Well, this is instructive, this passage about how to pray for us. It, I, I told you my felt need of prayer is what drew me to this passage. Those words, that simple phrase, pray for us, was on my mind. That brought me here. But then I was kind of like surprised. Like it wasn't quite my felt need about what I wanted prayer for. And so it was instructive for me about the essence of my calling, the importance of it among us, and... A lot, there's a lot of good stuff for us to learn from it. So how, do we, how should we pray for our ministers? How should you pray for me and the other pastors? Here's what Paul asked for. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. Go to the next slide. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. There's three things there that I see that Paul's asking for prayer for. Let me find where I am. First thing, Paul wants prayer that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. Literally in Greek, he's saying, pray that the word of the Lord will run. Pray that it will run. That's what we should pray for here. That there wouldn't be obstacles, hindrances to the word of the Lord being proclaimed. Not obstacles in me, not obstacles in you. Free reign for the word of God to do its good work among us. That's what we want. Pray for that. That's what Paul's asking for. Pray that it, the word of the Lord will run and spread rapidly. Do we want more people to know about their sin and the hope that God extends them in the gospel. Pray that the word of the Lord will run, that it will spread rapidly. We should desire that. We want to see that happen. Why else are we here than to see God's spirit move? So pray for that. Pray that it will run. We want the word of the Lord to run through our services, run through our sermons, run through our counseling meetings, through our small groups, through our funerals and our wedding ceremonies, run in our hospital visits, run, run, run. That's what we want. And if it did that, what a powerful blessing all of us would experience. We do experience that. We've experienced many great blessings of the freedom and the power of God's word, but let's not take it for granted. Pray for it to continue. Pray for more of it. Pray that the word of the Lord would run. Second thing, Paul wants them to pray that the word of the Lord would be glorified. What's, what does it mean for God's word to be glorified? Well, God's word is glorified when it accomplishes the work that God set it out to do. It has a purpose. And when it does that purpose, it shows its glory. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is to see the word of God glorified. So many, some of the most amazing things that I can never tell you about because they're so precious, so personal, so vulnerable, but so mighty. That's one of the privileges of being a shepherd. I get to see that and have things I wish I could in heaven, maybe we can all sit down and talk about it and give glory to God. But there are things so painful but so beautiful that God does through his word, not through any person or personality, but when he glorifies his word. We should pray that he would glorify his word among us. We know that it will be glorified because he says, my word, whenever it goes out, it always accomplishes the purposes that I've set it to. When I send it out, it doesn't return to me void or empty. It comes back having done exactly what I intended it to do. But it does a number of things, God's word. 
Sometimes it hardens hearts and condemns people and leaves them in their sin. We hope and want and need God's word to come here for blessing and for life. And God loves to do that. But we shouldn't take it for granted. Let's ask God to glorify his word among us through conversions, through transformation, through a greater understanding and delight, through good fruit in our lives. Pray that God will glorify his word among us. We need something infinitely better than Jody Killingsworth at his best, on his best day, to happen here. We need something infinitely better than Jody at his best 20 years from now, after having preached so many hundreds of times. We need something better than Stephen at his best or Max at his best. We need God to glorify his word. And he's proven that he can do that through a donkey in the book of Judges. He can do that through me if he wants to. Pray that he will glorify his word. That's what we need. We don't need personalities. I know I have a lot of growing to do. I will try to be as good as I can for you as a preacher, as a shepherd, as a friend, as a counselor, all those things. I want to get better. I hope I will. But in the end, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So may he glorify his word among us. Look to God. Expect good things from him. Ask him. Ask him for those good things in our church and in your life. Third, the third thing Paul asks for, he directs their prayer that their prayers would be made for him and his fellow laborers, that they would be rescued from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith, he adds. The preaching of the gospel elicits, I said earlier, two responses, but there's really a third response, and it's the saddest one of all. Indifference, shrug of the shoulders, whatever. That is a sad response to, th- to matters of life and death, of God, of heaven and hell. You kinda, sometimes you see that. It's a special kind of hardness and callousness, and it's sad. That's the most hopeless state to be in, indifferent, careless. But there's these more typical responses, which is faith and belief, the kind that says, when it hears the preaching of the law, says, what, woe is me, I'm undone. What can I do to be saved? There's this kind of faithful humility that is produced that results in eternal life being granted because that person is in it, sees them, their need, their desperation before God, and that's what the preaching does to them in their life. The other response is what? even greater hardness of life, or of heart and resistance to the truth, hatred of the truth, pushback. It's the kind of response that sounds like this and it's, it, when it's completely unveiled out of the box and out in the open. It's away from, with such a one from the earth. Get rid of that man. Shut that guy up. Those are two responses. Sometimes when God really glorifies his word, you see those responses, like both of them kind of rise together (laughs) in intensity. If we're asking for God to glorify his word with blessing, you can expect that there are going to be people that are going to hate that, resent that, and get aggressive about it. It's happened before. It's almost like I think that's why Paul says, for not all have faith. It's sort of like, you know, ho, you know, ho-hum. Not, not that he's indifferent, but he's sort of like saying, have, have some perspective. This is, we know this, not all have faith. This is the response of people that don't have faith. Take it in stride, steady as she goes. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord blesses us with faithful preaching and he glorifies his word, people will walk out. It's okay. Don't, 
Don't worry about it. Not all have faith. Steady as she goes. But sometimes that, you know, sometimes that comes with more than just I'm walking out of the service. I'm writing you up in the news media. I'm, I'm taking you to court. I'm trying to get you in trouble. Those kinds of things that have happened in history and they've happened in the history of our church. If we're faithful, they'll continue to happen. Pray that God would preserve and deliver and rescue us from perverse and evil men. For not all have faith. Jesus says, expect this. They hated me, they'll hate you also. The world hates you because the world doesn't know me. Not all have faith. So take it in stride, but pray that God would rescue us. We've been in some tight spots as shepherds, together with the board of elders, and you with us before. Some of the most difficult things that we have had to deal with, and one of the places where I want you to be just forewarned and not startled when it happens, some of the worst opposition we receive for our work and our faithfulness comes from within, not from without. Satan, Jesus taught, has sown tares, weeds, among the wheat. The wheat is a picture of healthy grain of God's house, his kingdom. The wheat are his people, his children, growing up and bearing fruit for him. And Satan has sown tares among the wheat, weeds that don't belong there. And Jesus says, you know, understand this it'll get sorted out at the end of the world. Don't worry about it, it'll get sorted out. But one of the things sometimes that happens is faithful preaching, faithful shepherding discovers tares. Either just by speaking the truth and bothering a conscience that gets irritated and agitated and angry and a tear sort of shows itself in its tariness. <laughs> You know, sometimes by the response to loving rebuke, the tears are revealed. Sometimes, sometimes they become our worst enemies. Don't be surprised. Steady as she goes. It will happen, Lord willing, because it's a sign of life. We don't want it to happen. We're not looking for trouble. We don't want people to be angry. We want them to love the truth and follow the Lord. But if they won't, in their hardness of heart, they can sometimes become our mortal enemies. Pray that God would deliver us and rescue us from those evil and perverse men. For not all have faith. We need that. Don't take... The God's gift to you and your elders and pastors is tremendous. Don't take us for granted, which is to not take yourselves for granted. Pray for us in these ways. The, the remaining verses I just want to touch on because I found them very helpful and pertinent too. The real reason we're here is pray for us. Pray for us. Okay? Pray for us. But I want to just touch on the remaining verses here. Paul, it's almost like when he brought up these perverse men, he knew he had sort of unsettled things and made people <laughs> uncomfortable. Because then he, sa he, uses, he says, not all have faith, but then immediately he says, but God is faithful. Look to God. God is faithful. Don't be disturbed. God is God. God is faithful. He'll be faithful to you. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So here he was praying for themselves but then he realizes he's disturbed his, his flock and he says, don't worry, God will strengthen and protect you. And brothers and sisters, he will. Trust in the Lord. 
You don't have to take, when people reject us, please don't take it personally. Behind that is the devil, forces of darkness. We love these people. I'm thinking of particular people who have caused us incredible harm. And I still find that I love them. Not because that's natural to me, but, but that's because that's what God has granted us, hearts that love. Our hearts go out to these sinners who are trapped in, their, in bondage to their sin. May God rescue them from it. It'd be wonderful to celebrate their repentance and restoration. <laughs> wonderful. Happy day, banner days. And may God, God has given us some banner days like that before. Tremendous days where we see really the power of his work in some, and, and the forgiveness of the church. <laughs> Just wonderful days. I hope we have those kinds of days to come. Behind people's rejection is really spiritual forces of darkness. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the forces of darkness. So let's look to the Lord. He will strengthen and help us. Paul goes on to declare his confidence in the Lord concerning the Thessalonians. I love this. This made me think of this congregation. I don't say it to flatter you. I say it. I'll explain why I, what I mean by it in a second. He says in verse 4, We have confidence in the Lord concerning you folks that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. It's my job to command you. It's my job to command you whether you want commanded or not. That's my job. But I rejoice in the fact that this is a church that is acclimated to commands, wants commands. I don't think I'm a reformer type. I don't think I would find it really doable to enter into a church that wasn't acclimated to that and start shepherding in the way that God would have me shepherd. That would be hard for me. I rejoice in God's kindness to me in the fact that this is a church that loves to be commanded from God's word. And I do have confidence. It's one of the things that has helped me and Jenna have confidence to move forward in this calling with you is not that this is a, a walk in the park, a cakewalk situation, but that you love God's word and you love faithful shepherding and you almost demand that I command you with authority. You know how most people preach by way of suggestion, by way of hedging. Have you heard it before? Well, may I suggest that what the Apostle Paul meant was, or um, it's uh, just all, I wish I could think, I wish I had a list of all of the ways that we, people hedge themselves and protect themselves and pretend that they're not really exercising authority or an office of authority. This is, our work, this is so countercultural, commanding people, there's like hundreds of books in the business world about how to hide your leadership. That's what most leadership books are about, how to bring people along. <laughs> but Paul is not ashamed of his authority. He bears it well, lovingly, humbly, tenderly, like a father. But he also is like, I have confidence in you that you do and will continue to do what I command you to do. And it's just, commanding is hard. Thank you for wanting it. And I pray that you will continue to require it of your shepherds and that you won't grow weary of it. Having prayed for, the, or asked for, prayers from the Thessalonians, Paul now turns and prays for them in the last verse. 
He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is my desire and prayer for you, that God would direct you more and more into the love of God and into the steadfastness, the perseverance of Jesus Christ, who fought the good fight, who persevered to the end, who was obedient in all things to his Father under great persecution and opposition in his life and temptation. This is my prayer for you. And that God would use me as an instrument in your progress into these things. He would lead you into these things even through me as I minister to you and preach to you. That's my desire. Can God make that to be? Can he bring that about? Could he bless you through your pastors in such a way as that? Can he bless us richly? Then let us devote ourselves to prayer. Let's ask him to. I'll ask for you. You ask for me. Prayer is the great need of this moment. That's why we're starting with this imperative. I had to go through the list. The imperative, this command. We need to pray. You cannot count on anything but God. He's the one unchangeable, the one faithful thing, the one secure and constant thing in your life. And there he is, full of blessing and power. Ask. You have not because you ask not. And everything we've just talked about that you should be praying for, you can have confidence before God is his will. And whatever we ask according to his will, we have. So pray. Will you pray? Will you pray? Commit yourself to prayer for these good things. I've been very encouraged by a number of your families who your own children, with even without your leadership, have been praying for me. And you've told me that around your dinner table for months now. Thank you, children. God loves your prayers. Pray for me. I want to be good for you. So pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Would you make it to run among us? Give it free reign to run. Glorify it. And preserve us, Father, from those who do not have faith. And bless us richly in the coming days and years. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.